it would be nice if you would open your Bibles again to 1 Peter chapter 3. We looked at chapter 2. We were looking at suffering. We're doing what's right. Now he's bringing it from the workplace into the marriage. He says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husband. If any husband obey not the word, that is the written word of God, that they may also without the spoken word of the wife be won by the life of the wife, which is very interesting. He's saying that a woman living the gospel message has a greater effect upon her husband coming to Christ than her preaching the gospel message to her husband. While they watch your chaste life coupled with fear. Who's adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of fancy hairdos, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of expensive clothes. He says that the adorning of a godly woman is not in the, the clothes and the expensive things like that, but let it be of the hidden man of the heart, which, in, which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. He says, for after this manner in all time, the holy women also trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in uh, subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, are not afraid with any amazement. Now let's look at this scripture. He's telling us here that there is three qualities for a godly woman. He said, number one, holy women trusted God. God never asks a woman to trust her husband. He asks her to trust God to work through her husband. The second thing he said about a holy woman, that's in verse 5, they adorned themselves. How? Not with fancy hairdos and costly clothes and very expensive accessories, but two things which are not corruptible, two things that are the beauty, the secret beauty aids of godly women of all times. One is the ornament of a meek spirit, which is the opposite of anger, and then a quiet spirit, which is the opposite of fear. So you have two major areas that women struggle with. Women struggle with anger. Women have a tendency to get anger, angry quicker and more often than men on a whole. Also, women have a tendency to fear. Oh, this will happen. Oh, that will happen. And they have a tendency to live with those things. And God says that what they need is meekness and a quiet spirit. And those things are in the sight of God a great price. And holy women adorn themselves with a meek and a quiet spirit. And then the third thing, they're in subjection to their own husband. He said, just like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, but she trusted God to work through Abraham. She even called him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do what is right, and do not give in to hysterical fears. Don't give in to those fears. As you give in to fears, Fears have a tendency to take over. Now he gives direction to husband. He's saying in verse three, at verse chapter three, verse one, likewise, ye wives, are you willing to suffer for doing right that you might bring healing to your husband? And then he says in verse seven, likewise, ye husbands, 
Husbands, are you willing to suffer to bring healing to your wife? He says, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. One of the lies that has been given to us in this age is that you cannot understand a woman. God would not tell us to dwell with our wives according to understanding if it's impossible to understand a wife. He would never, never do that. The second thing he tells us to do in relationship to our wives, he says, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. God designed men for men-sized burdens. God designed women for women-sized burdens. And when a woman takes on a man's burden, she may find herself crumbling under the load. When a man takes on a woman-sized burden, he'll find that he is ill-equipped to deal with the areas of life that a woman, as God has designed a woman to deal with. There are times when a wife uh, finds herself being both husband and mother to the children. It's a very difficult role. Or a husband finds himself being both father and mother to a child, or trying to be both, and it's almost impossible. And so he says to dwell with your wife according to what you know about her, giving honor to your wife as a weaker vessel, because you're heirs together of the grace of life. What does that mean? He's saying, do you realize that God has given you the ability to reproduce yourself in your children? What amazing thing it is to see yourself going on in the lives of your children. Now, let me tell you one thing that's even more amazing is to look at your grandchildren and realize that those grandchildren are part of you. It's just an amazing thought. I think about my mother when she looks at her great-grandchildren thinking they all came out from her. What a, what a thought. It's kind of unbelievable. But you and I, uh, one of the things that we can take to heaven with us is our children and our grandchildren. You ought to be praying. I do not want one of my children or grandchildren to go to hell. I want all of them to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says we're heirs together of the ability to reproduce ourselves sexually, and then the, the last thing he says, dwelling with your wife according to knowledge, that your prayers be not hindered. How often in scripture does it talk about two agree? And you know, marriage provides the proper group for prayer meeting. And he said, when a man is out of sorts with his wife, or his wife is out of sorts with a husband, then prayers will be hindered. It's amazing. Men can fake prayers more than a woman. And when a woman does not feel that things are right in the home, when her husband will ask her to pray, she'll say, I can't pray about it. I just can't. I feel things aren't right, and I don't feel right about it. A man seems to go through the motions. He seems to approach life more volitionally, and a woman approaches life more through her feelings. And when her feelings are not right, then she feels it's hypocritical for her to pray to God. And so a woman can be a real thermometer of what is going on in that family. He says, finally, be all of one mind. And that's what God wants us, one mind, to have one mind in all of these areas of life. We've looked at suffering. We looked at suffering as an individual. We looked at suffering in the workplace. We looked at suffering as a wife or as a husband and being willing to lay down our lives and to suffer to bring healing as Lord Jesus Christ set the example. 
what happens when we suffer and we refuse to go through it? There is some tremendous teaching here, and you and I need to be looking at it. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, and uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. He says, follow peace with all, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Look carefully, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. A root of bitterness is something that if you come into this ministry with a root of bitterness, things will happen that will trigger that root, and that bitterness will continue to grow, and eventually many people will be defiled. It's interesting uh, to see, and I've been in this ministry for seven years as the counselor of this mission, and it's interesting for me to see men who used to be in leadership for this mission, who resisted the grace of God, who are no longer with us, who are struggling with deep bitterness. What a tragedy. Because wherever they go, whoever they touch, bitterness will run from them into the lives of others. So it's extremely important that you and I look carefully. God gives us grace, the desire and the power to respond even to suffering, to hurts, to disappointments, in a way so that we do not have to become bitter. You and I can choose not to be bitter. And as we suffer, we must make choices because suffering is painful. And when that pain is registered, we must choose what we're going to do with it. And if we have a root of bitterness within us, then as new sufferings come, this will just explode. Let me share an illustration of this. A friend of mine was building his home, so it overlooked the Cascade Mountains. If you've ever been in the Seattle area, the Cascade Mountains run from Canada all the way down into California. In fact, Mount Shasta is probably one of the last of the mountains in the Cascade, and the significant mountains. Mount St. Helens, that blew up. That mountain was in the Cascade Range. Beautiful mountain range. Mount Rainier in Seattle is part of that range. And this fellow built his house on the side of a hill, or a cliff, actually. Well, one called a cliff. I guess the side of a hill would be more significantly describing this terrain. And he could look out and see. The house was designed so from the back of the house, everything looked at this beautiful mountain range. When they had the house built, it was a wooded lot, and there was a huge oak tree in the middle of the lot. When they moved in, because it was terraced down and so on, the tree was gone, and there was grass. In the spring, when springtime came, all of a sudden, through the lawn, came up oak shoots. What they had done is sawed the oak tree down and put dirt over the top of the stump, and so in the spring, up came the shoots. This father, wanting to teach his children some important truths, took the lawnmower, and they cut them, they cut them down, and they mowed over them. And as they kept mowing the grass, they were able to keep it down. But the next year, the next spring, guess what happened? Up they came again. And so he taught his children of a root of bitterness. Until the roots were destroyed, up from those roots would come the shoots. And they keep springing up and springing up whenever there was an opportunity. So we need to have surgery. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to remove 
from our lives the root of bitterness, that we would have divine surgery, that God would remove this root of bitterness. Now, how can this take place? How does this happen in our life? Let's look at Ephesians. We could go so many different ways with this. We want to look at various scriptures. I wish we could look at all of them at once, but we can't. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. There's some interesting teaching here. He's going to talk now about suffering. You and I, if we would draw an L, if you could see this, the L going up this way is the intensity of the pain. Going across is the timeline, the, the, the longer time. And here in the corner is when I'm hurt. So here is an event that takes right in the L right here, in the L shape. Let's see if we can see an L shape like this. Right in this corner down here, I'm hurt. It will be registered in intensity. So I have hurt and it goes up. That is the first thing that I will sense. And that hurt can just go over and then trail off. The second thing that I will hurt could be, uh, I could feel is resentment, the nerve. I can't believe it. Could you believe that they would do something like that to me? Can you believe that? And then up comes my resentment. And it goes higher than the hurt. And then it trails off. If I don't deal with it at the resentment, the very next stage that come up is bitterness. So bitterness comes up, and it goes over, and it's even higher. And then eventually, if I still refuse to deal with it, eventually revenge can come up, and I want to get even, and that's high. A friend of mine pastored a small church in a western state, and in the small country church, on one side of the church sat one brother and his family, and most of the church was his family, and his brother sat on the other side of the aisle, and his family, in a church that probably didn't have 50 people in it, both these brothers and their extended families, and neither brother had spoken to each other for over 10 years, going to the same little dinky church. And they were looking for God to pour out a blessing upon that church. Guess what? It hasn't happened. And so these men are willing to make things right. They are grieving the Spirit of God. It says in Ephesians 4.30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, you catch that? How much bitterness? Let all bitterness and all wrath and all anger and all clamor and all evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, have forgiven you. Now what is the opposite of bitterness? It is forgiveness. Do you realize that God wants us to exercise our will to forgive? And when you and I think of the bitterness and of the hurts, if, we, if I would say, have you been deeply hurt in the past? You can think of that hurt. And if you've not forgiven, it will be very, we can call that right up on top of the surface, and it's like opening a wound again. So here we are with this wound, deeply hurt. And then those feelings begin to come up. And we say, how can I forgive somebody when I think about what they did and how deeply it hurt me? Today, I spent time with a man. And let me tell you a story. This man that was here today to see me, 
here at CUF headquarters. When he was four years of age, his father and mother were alcoholics the whole his whole lifetime. But by the time he was four years of age, almost five, he had been sexually abused by four different men. When he was five years of age, he was given by his parents, who did not want him, to an evangelist's son who was a pedophile. A pedophile is one who had sex with children. This pedophile, who claimed to be a Christian, had sex with this man from the time he was five until he was 12 years of age. They had devotions every day. The devotions that he had were from Revelation, from the beast of Ezekiel, from all these strange scriptures. He knew more strange scripture passages than I have ever heard of. I mean, you just don't even think of these passages. And at 12 years of age, he became a Christian. And he asked this man, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. He said, if you're a Christian, why do you do to me those things that you do that are so evil? And the man had no answer. So he came to his alcoholic mother and he said, Mom, do you realize what this man is doing to me? Would you let me come home? He came home to live with his parents. His mother was murdered later, and his father committed suicide. Is there any hope for a man who grew up basically on the streets of life after that time? Is there any hope for a man like that? This man went on to Bible college and has pastored a very, very successful church. Yes, there is. Because this man learned the truth of Ephesians. And that is that he could not necessarily change the circumstances of his life, but he had control over how he responded to it. Either he could become bitter or he could become or he could exercise forgiveness. And he chose forgiveness over bitterness. That is so very, very important. Look at 1 Thessalonians. It talks about this in a very special, significant way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, quench not the Spirit of God. And before that, he mentions this. In everything, how many things? In everything, give thanks. What is give? Give is exercising my volitional will. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We quench the Holy Spirit when we say no to God. No, I am not going to do this. No, I refuse to receive this out of your hand. You keep it. I don't want it. That's exactly what it's saying here. See, when we thank God, we're acknowledging the sovereignty of God, and we're thanking God for his higher purpose in this situation. See, thanking God is an act of the will done in obedience to God. Being thankful is an act of our emotions that come as we realize the benefits of God's actions. Obedience must precede understanding. And so when I thank God for this situation, I say, God, you are sovereign. You will not allow anything to come into my life which is beyond my control, 
which will ruin or hinder God's purpose for my life. That's why Job, when he went through all of that suffering, and everything was taken away. Here all this, the demonic world was released. In fact, God is the one who called Satan's attention to Job. Interesting, isn't it? God said, have you considered Job? Look at Job. Job was on the inside of God's protection. Job knew that nothing could pass through that hedge without God's permission. So that when everything was taken away from him and he knew he was living in the center of God's will, he fell down and he worshipped the one who allowed the enemy to penetrate that protection to deal with him. Job knew that when Satan's flaming missiles were allowed to penetrate God's protection, that they were no longer flaming missiles of destruction, but God's refining fire to purify him. And he could say, God, I worship you. You gave it to me. You took it away. I will bless your name. Tremendous teaching in 1 Thessalonians. You and I will go through life. We will get. Things will be taken from us. And we must say, thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives. I just had a tremendous thing happen about a month ago. Here we are looking for a home. We found that where we're moving, the homes are so much more expensive than where we are here in Warrington. That in order for us to be able to get a home, which we don't have one to get, but if we were able to get a home, that the home would cost us so much more than what we had. One morning here at the office at 6 o'clock in the morning, I got a telephone call from a man who said this, Mr. Logan, would you allow my wife and I to send you a gift to help you to find a house? And I said, yes, we would allow them to do it. And about two or three weeks ago, we received a gift. The gift was for $10,000. Just an out gift. We want you to have it. We want you to put it on a down payment of the house. We want to help you to get a home. Is God able to supply? Is God able to move in marvelous ways to provide our needs? Yes, he is. You and I can trust him. God is worthy of our trust. We were in desperate need of transportation. We had one vehicle that was on death row, and we, and we had another vehicle uh, that was better, but not really that dependable. And one day a man said, would you allow me to give you an Aerostar minivan where my wife and I are leasing this car, and we'd like you to drive it. And I said, have you asked your wife? And he said, no. And I said, well, then you shouldn't give it to me. You need to ask your wife. He asked his wife, and she said, I think it's a terrible idea. He said, you didn't pray about it. She prayed about it. We've been driving that for three years. They pay the insurance on it. I buy, pay no insurance. I don't pay for tags. I don't pay for license. I pay for nothing. I just drive it and have driven it for three years and have put on many thousands and thousands of miles traveling for CEF and speaking. God can meet our needs. We need to realize that. And we have no right to get bitter. God is in charge. God is a sovereign one. And we need to surrender to God's sovereignty and allow him to work events in our life. God is working in our lives. And we need to allow him to do this. When God allows something to happen in my life, I need to look beyond the happening and see God's hand. And then I need to thank God for it rather than resent it or I will become bitter. You and I 
will be hurt. You and I will be disappointed. People will let us down. I have some missionaries in the room right now that I'm talking to. Missionary candidates, both of them have been let down by people they never dreamed. And that is what causes us, if we're not careful, to become bitter because we never dreamed it would come that way. We thought we expected it a different way, but it doesn't come that way. The thing that puts the pain in the hurt is the who does it. That's what puts the pain in. We didn't expect it. We didn't think. And David said, I was wounded in the house of what? Friends. I never expected. The enemies, yeah, I expected my enemies to hurt me. But I never expected a, a friend to let me down. And whenever you and I get our eyes on an individual, often that individual will let us down. And if we're not careful, roots of resentments can come into our heart and spring up. And as they spring up in me, many will be defiled. I begin to share. Do you know what they did? Can you believe what they did to me? And so God says, would you exercise your will, and will you forgive them? In the very same way I forgave you. How did God forgive me? 100%. God didn't sort of forgive me. God forgave me 100%. And I wasn't easy to forgive. We think, well, it wasn't so hard for God to forgive us. Look how nice we are. God looks down from heaven. He doesn't see any niceness in us at all. God sees us as sinners. Look at Romans 12. What should I do when I suffer? And I've got to be so careful that I don't fall into the trap of not forgiving. Because if I don't forgive, resentments can build and build, and eventually they'll grow into bitterness. Jesus said at the end of Matthew 18, he said, if you continue to hold resentments and bitterness in your heart, if you continue to be unforgiving, my Heavenly Father will turn you over to the tormentors. Now, I don't know the depths of all of that, but I know this. I do not want God to turn me over to the tormentors. Look at Matthew, uh, Romans 12. Romans 12 says, Don't give evil to any man for evil, but provide things honest in the sight of all people. Since it is possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with everybody. Dearly beloved, do not take matters in your own hands. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to that wrath. Because it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, saith the Lord. What did Jesus do? When Jesus suffered, he committed the situation into God's hands. That's exactly what he's telling us to do here. God says, if there's any even to do, I'll do it. Just put the situation in my hands. I will take care of it. I will take care of it for you. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, you feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And what he's saying there is not, you say, okay, I'll do something good if God's really going to get him. But the idea there is the fire pot that people carried in Bible days, they would heat coals of fire in that pot in the morning as you were going on your trip, as you're visiting someone. If they felt that you were a good friend, they would put more of their hot coals in that pot. You'd put it on your head, and there was a warmth that would come down. And all day long, your wife would be remembered that they spared not and filled that pot with hot coals, which was carried on the head, and saying, weren't they gracious? Wasn't it a kind act for them to do? And what he's saying here is when our enemy is mistreating us, when we do good to them, 
it can cause a warmth to come upon them towards us. Because we're not to be overcome of the evil they've done, but we're to overcome the evil they've done with good. Look at this in the Old Testament. Turn to Genesis, a tremendous example there in the book of Genesis. Genesis 45. Genesis chapter 45. Remember, this is in the life of Joseph. What an interesting story. Here God tells this man that God wants him to be a leader. And the only thing that God didn't tell him was the route to leadership. And I wonder many times if Joseph was not tempted to get discouraged. So how can you say that? Well, because he probably was human. And I would get discouraged. And here God says, I'm going to be a leader. I end up in prison, leading people in a jail. That's not what I call good leadership. You know, I have no desire to be the head prisoner in some dark jail someplace, smelly, dirty jail. I have no desire to be a leader there. And so it looked like his whole life came crushing down because of his brothers. You know, the scripture tells us that God places us in families. Do you suppose that Joseph ever wished for different brothers? Have you ever wished that your family situation was different? Have your brothers ever plotted your mother? They did Joseph. And yet we've learned so much from Joseph. Let's pick up the story of Joseph here in chapter 4. Here he's going to reveal himself now to his brothers. They didn't know he was. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold to Egypt. See, he remembered what happened to him. See, forgiveness is not forgetting what happened. Forgiveness, when it's run its course, it's remembering without the pain. When I can remember situations of my life and it's only historical facts without the emotions, then I know forgiveness has brought its healing. Therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourself that you sold me hither. But I know what you did. I mean, you sold me. You were going to kill me, but you decided you sell me and make some money. For you sold me, but God sent me before you to preserve life. And for these two years hath a famine been in your land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earring or harvest. You've only had two years of famine. There's five years left to go. God sent me. You sold me. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth, to save your lives by great deliverance. So now, it was not you that sent me here, but God through your acts. So Joseph was able to see God's hand in all of this. And Joseph was forgiving. Look at Genesis 50. This is now when Joseph's father dies. The boys, his brothers, are really fearful that, uh-oh, now that dad's not here, Joseph will get even, because that's the way they operated. They would have gotten even. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face and said, Behold, we are thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, and he said it again, Fear not, for I am in the place of God. How did he get in the place of God? Not in a way I'd like to go. Sold, stood alone, paid a price, on and on and on. 
But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God. See, people's motives towards me may be wrong. If I am living in the center of the will of God, their motives may be wrong. But I know if I am in the center of God, God will not allow anything to penetrate my life that does not pass through his approval. You thought evil against me, but God meant it and used it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save many, many people alive. Turn to Luke, Luke 6, and we will close with this instruction of the Lord. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. He's talking here now about uh, an enemy. He says, but I say unto you which here, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. What am I supposed to do to the people who hate me? I'm to look for opportunity to, good, to do good to them, that their hearts may be warm towards me. Bless them that curse you. Now, that doesn't mean if someone puts that curses you that you say, God bless you. But later on, if someone gets angry and says something they shouldn't have, later on, maybe you could show them how that God used that for a blessing. A fellow that played for the Chicago Bears, I think you call it the Chicago Bears, I think that's a football team. His coach knew he was a Christian. And this coach, whenever this fellow would fumble or not do well, would curse him out. Just, I mean, literally curse him out. And one day, this, this young man, because it just bothered him that he would say such terrible things to him, he went to the coach and he said, Coach, I can't thank you enough for your concern for me and wanting me to be a better player. And I thank you for pointing out where I do wrong and I thank you also for trying to show me how to correct those wrong. Thank you for your interest in my playing. And from that time on, that coach, whatever he would swear, he would say, pardon my French, I'm sorry, excuse me, I didn't mean it, you know what I mean, I'm sorry. And he never apologized to him before, but then when he cursed him and he, he got down and showed him the blessings, how this curse was a blessing in his life, the coach changed the way he talked to him. So it's kind of unique, applying scripture to your life. And then he said, for those who despitefully use you, all you can do is pray for them. There's so many instructions in scriptures. My enemies, God tells me to love them. The haters, I am to meet basic needs. The cursors, I'm to show how their curses are benefiting my life and those who would abuse me. God said, pray for them. Is your God big enough to stop the attacks of the enemy through individuals? You know, this is something I do every day. You'll get it on another tape, but I think it's so important that you do it too. Would you pray that you would not be a tool in the hand of the enemy in the life of someone else? That you would not be one that someone's praying for? Because you're the cruel one. God said that you and I are to edify one another. We're to build up one another. May our lives not cause somebody 
to have to struggle with resentments and bitterness and trying to get the victory because of our life. Are you a mature Christian? If you're a mature person, then do not give ground to the enemy to use you to attack a brother and sister. Father, may we edify one another, build up, and not tear down. You said, let no corrupt communication proceed from our mouth. Corrupt is that which is rotten, that which is breaks down. Father, may we not break one another down, but may we build up one another in the faith. Thank you, Father, for what you want to do and what you plan to do in and through our lives. We ask this, that you would be glorified in us and that we might learn to be encouragers of one another as we seek to become Christ-like in our attitudes and character. In Christ's name we pray.